week's episode of Emmy Stories with Phoebe. I'm your host, Phoebe Brapo-Wusu, bringing you today's thoughts and stories about education as an immigrant. We'll be hearing from immigrants about what surprised them the most about education overseas, their relationships with their instructors, and the correlation between level of education and how they're viewed in their immigrant communities. But before we get this started, if you are interested in sharing your story with this podcast, please send me an email at is with phoebe at gmail.com. That's is with p h e b e at gmail.com. Remember to hit that subscribe button and share with a friend or two. All right, let's get into it. Our first story comes from Ken. And Ken says, I'll start from day one Calculus 101. Oh, that's a little scary. I did take calculus in college, it was hard. Our professor walks into the classroom and the first thing he does is he grabs the duster and begins to wipe the blackboard. Now, being from Ghana, where I have never seen a teacher do this, I almost instinctively stood up to go help him. But seeing that everyone else seemed cool with it, I sat back. (laughs) Yeah, nobody's going to go clean up the the blackboard for what? Uh Uh-uh, we're paying to be here. All right, let's get back to the letter. It was also strange for me to refer to my professors by their first names, as my classmates did, usually at the request of the professor. This was extremely difficult for me and took time to get used to. The former relationship I was used to with teachers back home held me back from reaching out to teachers for help with coursework. I'd instead spend hours trying to figure out things on my own when it could have been explained to me within minutes with my professor. By the time I started grad school, I had gotten used to this and did not hold back at all in reaching out to professors for help. This is so true. I think that some of us who are not used to um, educators being very involved in our learning or, um, you know, being open to to feedback and... um, being able to help us in ways that we're not used to, we, we don't make use of this. We don't make use of the service at all that teachers um, are paid to really offer us. So that's, that's a great point, Ken. In response to um, level of education and that correlation, Ken says, I don't think it makes much of a difference because we, my wife and I, she's an MD, by the way. Okay, you better stand for your wife. Okay, your doctor wife. All right, so he says... We are in a multicultural neighborhood where most people are MDs. And MD here means medical doctor, by the way, if you didn't pay attention to that. And their spouses have at least a college degree. And two, even among our immigrant friends, we don't stand out because everyone else is at least college educated. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Ken. It sounds like you are among some very educated people. That's amazing. All right. Next up, we have some thoughts from Elfridi. Elfridi says, my responses may be slightly biased because I cannot directly compare my educational experience in Ghana with that in the U.S. since I obtained my elementary and high school education in Ghana and my tertiary education in the U.S. 
I'll be comparing apples to oranges due to the differences in levels of training in either country. People eating in class or freely walking out of lectures was surprising to me. Whew. Girl, who you telling? That, that was a huge, huge surprise to me, too. And it took some getting used to the teachers, therefore nurturing critical thinking among the students. In Ghana, the teacher lectures and students listen, with very few interruptions. That's very true. However, what surprised me the most in a good way are the structures and practices that have been put in place to allow students to succeed. For instance, teachers having office hours for students with additional questions or requiring additional help that could not be accommodated during the lecture period, or teachers sometimes giving students the opportunity to redo a paper. Oh, see that part right there, redoing a paper. I wish I'd made use of that. I didn't even know that was a thing because some of the teachers didn't put their, these things into their syllabi, I guess you would say. And so I didn't know that that was even a thing. And there were some papers that I wish I could have redone. Even though I was very close to most of my teachers while I was back home, I, like the other students, referred to our teachers by their last names, preceded by the appropriate title or salutation. No matter how young the teacher was, under no circumstances were we allowed to call them by their first names. Mm-hmm. When I moved to the U.S., it took me a long time and numerous reminders from teachers for me to call them by their first names. During my graduate and postgraduate medical training, my relationship with my teachers and supervisors became more collegial. Teacher supervisor related, um, teachers or supervisors related to me as a colleague rather than their students. Our relationship extended from the classroom or hospital wards to our families. That's really nice. Alfredi also says, in today's America, a lot of people, especially those that have not been exposed to or interacted much with immigrants, have negative perceptions about immigrants and assume immigrants have lower education or work manual jobs. So it's such a wow moment for them when they learn you're educated, even sometimes have a higher level of education than they do and have a higher paying job. You better tell them. People begin to treat you differently once they know your level of education. Within our immigrant community, you're looked upon highly for having a high level of education because you bring honor to the community and in a way dispel the myths that the larger community may have about immigrants. Your community is usually very proud of you and your accomplishments and reaches out to you to mentor younger immigrants. I'm a physician and I feel that a lot of my immigrant patients feel that they can trust me with their care in a country where there is so much distrust in the healthcare system. They see me as one of their own and that I won't fail or deceive them. Well, Dr. Ofridi, we are grateful for all of your hard work. And you're right. We are proud of you and your accomplishments, especially. Our last one for today comes from Fauzia Ellis. Fauzia says, I was incredibly surprised when I started my pharmacy school journey. We had a practical or lab classes where we had to put our knowledge from didactic lessons to use. We had to see, quote unquote, patients, talk and interact with them like we would in an actual practice. Oof, okay. Unfortunately, the education in Ghana focused a lot on memory, while pharmacy school was the complete opposite. Not only did I have to memorize in class, but I had to understand and apply that as well. And apply that as well. My only C in pharmacy school 
was as a result of this and I didn't have the confidence I needed to execute it in initially. Well, I'm glad that was your only C, girl. As far as relationships, I believe the biggest difference is availability of teachers after class ended. In Ghana, we could ask questions during class, which was great, but if you had questions after class, you had to get the help of a friend or go find answers on your own. I just want to shout out all those smart folks that were in classes because when we were growing up, y'all were the real ones. We came to you all and some of you were kind enough to um, give us what we needed, give us the answers, help us, you know, copy your homework. And some of you did the opposite. So remember all of you, all of you all. In contrast, in the U.S., I had access to my teachers during business hours, whether class was in session or not. Fozzie also continues saying, I will say that African communities, specifically Ghanaians, attribute higher education to success. They automatically assume that you're doing well in life if you have some degrees to your name. This is particularly and painfully obvious with the older population. However, I think it stems from the lack of employment in Ghana and how people who have degrees are deemed as more um, deemed to have more stable careers. All right. Well, thanks for sharing these lovely stories with us. At this point, I would like to give a special shout out to all our teachers and professors out here who are having to make some huge ad adjustments to how they teach. Uh, I mean, from lesson planning to implementation to testing, because we know that COVID has really tested you all, and I just want to say that we appreciate you. For a lot of um, young immigrants, the educational setting is the first place of assimilation to American culture, especially. That's where you learn a lot about who the people here are and really how how the country is because that small space is a representation of the larger space of what what the community is like and for me one of my first classes in college was chemistry um i was a pre-med major for a very short time and i had this professor who insisted that we should call him by his first name and this class was full of international students by the way so it even got to a point where he would refuse to respond if you called him by his title. He was a PhD. And it was so, so hard. So for someone who had so many international students in his class, you know, I would have hoped my fantasy or my dream would have been that he would take the time to try to understand where we were coming from in trying like not to impose this this cultural anomaly really for a lot of us on us and force us to call him by first name it wasn't just one international student one year no this man was known to i mean it was like chemistry 101 or chemistry 10 or chemistry 100 i don't remember exactly but it was the intro to chemistry class and a lot of um the science students, science majors, went through this class. But he, I guess it, it wasn't really a thing for him. 
and he didn't understand how hard it was. And so, you know, we, we've heard in some of these other letters that professors would um, want their students to call them by first name. And it's just not something that people from other cultures might be used to, you know. Another culture shock for me educationally was how people would show up to class. I went to an all-women's college in North Carolina, and um, <laughs> these girls would show up looking like they had just rolled out of bed. I mean, sometimes they had really just rolled out of bed. Our campus was not that big, so you could wake up five minutes before class and make it to class, I guess. And um, here I was, you know, dressed up, looking like I was going to the office, looking all stellar. And they would show up in their pajamas, wearing their Ugg boots, holding their little Vera Bradley bags with a string of pearls around their necks because, you know, we were in the South, so the Southern Bells had to represent. And so that in itself was a very interesting experience. Um, I, too, wish I had made use of office hours when I was in college. I used to think that those were the actual hours that the professors worked, and so they didn't need to be bothered. So I didn't really go unless I, for some strange reason, needed needed to. And um, when I got to grad school, I think that changed a little bit because I, I got to realize that people were actually making use of their professor's time and doing better in class because of that. Another thing is that for a while, I was really jealous of American students' courage to argue with their professors and challenge the things that they were saying because, you know, looking back, some of them would say certain things that are really eyebrow-raising, but who was I to come and say, Sarah, ma'am, oh, well, you know, you have to say their first name. Um, you're wrong. And it that was another part that was a bit of a, a challenge um, for me because there's this... Uh, hierarchy. You look at age, you look at position, this position of power that your professor finds themselves in. They they grade you. Um, they determine whether you move on or you're, you fail the class and you have to take it again. And, you know, how could I come and challenge you on that? I, it was just beyond my imagination. And also, like Fazia said, some of us were used to rote learning and all of a sudden we're chucked into these classes where we had to be analytical thinkers and some of us knew nothing about that and so for example you would have a a class where you know you you read your notes and there's all these different things these facts or whatever and then all of a sudden you go on uh, on the test and it's not exactly that but it's some sort of like roundabout way of asking you that question I failed many a test because of that because I would go in learning the facts you know a plus B is equal to C, blah, blah, blah. And then I would go into the test and they would ask, you know, something like, so what if A wasn't, you know, really there, but you had to add C to something? What would that make B? I'm like, excuse me, like this, this was not in the notes. This wasn't on the PowerPoint that I copied exactly, by the way, into my notes. Because <laughs> that's what we did. That's what I was used to. And so I wish that, you know, just as some schools have these ESL programs, that there were some programs to introduce immigrants and international students to American learning. There really wasn't. I think that the college 100 classes 
was some attempt to do something like that. But for me, it, it felt like a failure on the part of my school. Um, another part is, and when I, I thought about this when I was reading Ken's um, letter about, you know, the teacher on the blackboard, you know, I'm from a place where you would be punished for not standing up and greeting your instructor when they walked into a class. Or if the teacher came and the blackboard wasn't cleaned and ready for their use, like you were you were getting punished. You this it was trouble for you. But here that really wasn't the case. Like, you know, if the board is clean or not, that's that's on the teacher and it's whatever. And you know, people would even still have their backs towards the instructor when they came in into the class to teach or would come into class, you know, at any time. And it, it was okay. It was fine. I I wasn't used to that. And it took me a really long time to get used to that. We see a common theme in today's letters among immigrant communities that, you know, the more education you have, the better. So as soon as you get your bachelor's degree, people show up to your graduation the first question is, and so when are you getting your master's? And then you go to grad school, people ask you at graduation, so when are you going to get your PhD? I mean, it's a thing. And that puts so much pressure on people, a lot of pressure. Um, sometimes we don't, we don't realize it, but that's really what it is. Pressure to perform, pressure to do more, and not given space for us to just enjoy where we're at and embrace the fact that we've made it through this huge part of education and we have a degree and that's cool. You know, having a bachelor's is okay because guess what? Some some jobs only require that. You don't need to have a master's degree for certain things. And we don't all have to get master's degrees. We don't all have to get PhDs. You have to do what fits with your career goal and what fits with you, really, what you want to do with your life. And at the same time, I also understand where this comes from. You know, in my opinion, it's it sometimes about optics, trying to prove your worth and yourself in a country that's not really yours. So in a lot of ways, we, we can't afford to be mediocre. You have to stand out. And even more importantly, when, when your resume crosses your employer's desk or your future employer's desk, you want to make sure that they remember you because not only are you an immigrant, probably on a visa, hoping that this job would be the one to sponsor your work visa, uh, your H-1B, something like that. You want, you want to be able to stand out for them to see, oh, hey, this person is, is worth us putting in the work and the money to, to sponsor them. So I get it. I get it. It's, it's a stressor for a lot of people, a lot of immigrants. And so we do the best that we can. So fun fact, a Pew Research study from 2018 show that among immigrant adults 25 years and up, 32% have a bachelor's degree or more, 18.8% had a two-year degree or some college, and 49.2% had a high school diploma or less. Now, there's many factors that go into these statistics. We could spend hours and hours talking about it, but we won't get into it today. So that's it for today. Let me know your thoughts. If you have a story about your adjustment to Western educational systems, American educational systems, send me an email at iswithphoebe at gmail.com. That's iswithphoebe at gmail.com. 
I really look forward to hearing from you. So thanks for listening today. And thanks for all the support so far. I've seen a lot of these posts on social media, especially on Instagram. And I really appreciate the support. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a rating, share with your friends and your family, and come back next week for another episode of Emmy Stories with Phoebe.